if you were with us last week, you saw that really Paul's letter here to the Romans, as he kind of builds up into chapter 8, it's the beating heart of Christianity. The term Christian, I think, over the years has really lost its meaning. A lot of people claim to be Christians, but they, they don't follow Christ. So we've been learning, really, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And I think we've already seen that it's better than many people realize. And the term Christian is only really used three times in Scripture. As we learned last week, what Paul's favorite term is when describing those who have submitted their lives to Christ, he uses the term in Christ. We are in Christ, or we are unified with Christ. We are joined with Christ. We are clothed with Christ. As one commentator writes, no saving good, no eternal good, no God-exalting good, no soul-satisfying good comes to us except as we are connected to Christ. That reality that we are in Christ, it's vital because all of these promises, all of these benefits, everything that we've been studying, that we get a walk in, is because we are directly connected to Jesus Christ. We are in Christ and he is in us. We are justified, we are sanctified, and one day we will be glorified because we are found in Christ. In chapter 8, it's been, it's been huge. Paul starts out with the statement that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no penalty. We are free from the wages of sin, which is death. The moment we give our life to Jesus Christ. And we're going to see, at the end of chapter 8, Paul proclaims, and there is no separation from the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no separation. Now, what are some of the benefits that we've studied of finding ourselves in Christ? Well, as we've already said, we're free from the law of sin and death. We are now indwelled by the Spirit of God, and we are led by the Spirit. We don't have to, we owe our flesh nothing. We are not debtors to our flesh. What has our flesh ever done for us but deceive us? And lead us down a path of destruction and harm for ourselves and those that we love. So we are indwelled by the Spirit and we're led by the Spirit. We don't always follow the Spirit, but at least we're led by it. We have also been given a spiritual mind. Paul says the carnal mind is death, but the spiritual mind is what? Life. And it's interesting, in chapter 7, Paul made that statement. Even Remember, Paul is up there in years as he writes to the church in Rome. And he says, the things that I want to do, I do not do. And the things that I don't want to do, I'm still practicing those things. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to my Lord Jesus Christ. But one thing I want to point out, because we look at that and we're like, man, what a, what a horrible position to be in. But what does Paul say? The things that I want to do, I don't practice. There's a spiritual mind there. There's a desire to do what God desires for us to do. But there's a battle that's going on. So Paul talks about there's an awakening when we come to Christ. We are given the ability to think in a way that God thinks. To have his desires within us. So we're led by the Spirit, we're given a spiritual mind, and we're adopted into the family of God. We're his children. And in Romans 8, 17, if we're children, Paul writes, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That means we get to share in all that is owed to Jesus. So what is Jesus? What, what is Jesus's? What belongs to him? Well, in Hebrews 1.1, we read that God, who at various times, in various ways, spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of some things. 
a what? Heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So what are we joint heirs in? All things. And if children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. But we paused on Paul's statement there in verse 17. If indeed we what? Suffer. It was a positive message last week. But then we got to chapter, or verse 17, and we learned, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Guys, this is the anti-prosperity message. There will be suffering if we are found in Christ. There will be pain. There will be tribulation. That statement should give us reason to pause considering all that Christ suffered here on earth. If we identify with Jesus in life, we will also identify with him in death. There will be trouble for those who are in Christ. We're going to share in his sufferings. Well, what does that mean? Christ was nailed to a cross. He was beaten beyond recognition as a man. Does it mean we're going to suffer like that? Probably not. But he suffered as a man. He suffered as a man who was between two worlds. He was living in a fallen world full of men and women who reject who God is, and what God stands for. But that wasn't his final home. We're going to suffer like Christ suffered to some extent. But Paul tells us here, it's worth it. It's going to be worth it. Peter tells us the same thing in 1 Peter 5.10, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, that Greek word for a while is a short time, after you have suffered for a short time, you'll be perfected, established, strengthened, and the Lord will settle you. Paul also adds in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I hope we see, as we begin this morning's study, there is a direct connection with the sufferings of this life and the glory we will experience when we are raised from the dead. There is a direct connection with today's tribulation and the glory and the joy of tomorrow. The suffering of Christ is inseparable from the glory of Christ. But the glory that awaits us is far greater than the suffering of this present age. That's what Paul is going to teach us. Look at verse 18 in chapter 8. For our I consider... For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Again, I've said it last week, chapter 8 is full of battle verses. So if you're going through something right now that is extremely difficult, please hear this. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are nothing they can't even be compared to what the future has for those who are in Christ Jesus. The glory which shall be revealed in us. So what are present sufferings? What does that mean? Is it they were out of your favorite latte at Starbucks? Or... 
favorite team lost because Brooklyn's unwilling to trade Kevin Durant, whatever it may be, is that the present sufferings of this age? Well, Paul first mentions these sufferings in Romans 5. In verse 1, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There it is again. We're going to hear that a lot. We rejoice in this hope, this coming good that we're certain is going to take place. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in what? Tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and then character hope. So if you follow that path that starts with tribulation, where do you end up? Hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So here it is again. Tribulation gives birth to hope. It's the expectation of a coming good. And hope does not disappoint because we have been given the Holy Spirit which is a taste of things to come. So again, we need to settle this in our hearts. See, hope isn't simply a reward for our suffering. Glory isn't simply a reward for our suffering. This glory, this hope for glory, grows out of our suffering. There's a necessary relationship here between the two, just as Jesus suffered and died, and then he was raised up in glory. But again, what are these sufferings, these tribulations? The Greek word, it's not fancy. It means negative experiences. Boy, that's pretty broad, isn't it? Well, the sufferings of this life are pretty broad. We could go around this room and talk about what, everything's growing, what everyone's going through and it's going to be vastly different from one person to the next because we live in a fallen world full of fallen people and we hurt ourselves and we hurt one another. And we can tell stories about that hurt this morning. If you recall Paul in 2 Corinthians, he was going through a kind of suffering. We don't know exactly what it was, but he said that he had prayed to God three times that God would remove this suffering from him. He called it a thorn in his flesh, a thorn in his side. And he said, I prayed three times that the Lord would deliver me from this. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. He's saying when I suffer, Christ is glorified. When I suffer, I know that's going to give birth to glory. And then he says, for when I am weak, I know I am strong. So we, Paul gives us a, a list of some of the sufferings. It's not comprehensive, but he says infirmities. That means we live in fallen bodies and our fallen bodies are breaking down. Anybody relate to that? I woke up this morning and my elbow hurt. Do you know why? I don't know. I just woke up. I didn't do anything to it. I'm only 40. But our bodies are breaking down. Infirmities, that's sickness. It's bodily weakness. It's the result of suffering because sin has corrupted our bodies. Our bodies are failing. He says in needs. What are needs? It's suffering because of our circumstances. We don't have enough, not just once, but needs, enough affection, enough, you, you name it. Seems like everyone is living with some kind of lack in their life. 
That's why advertisers have a, a heyday with us. Because we have this hole in us and we think we need something more and they try to claim they can fill that. And we just move from one thing to the next. Anything that promises to meet our needs. But again, that's a human issue because we've been corrupted, corrupted by sin. So in our lack, in persecution, what's persecution? It's suffering caused by another to you. Harm caused by others. In distress, that's mental suffering, mental anguish. When we lay our heads on our pillows and our mind just won't stop because it's going through all the worries of the day and all the worries of, the t of tomorrow and the next week and the next year and we just won't stop. Or we look out at our lives and we think there's nothing to look forward to. It's mental distress. Paul says in all of these things, God can be glorified. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How is that? That sounds like a really great idea, Pastor, but how does that even make sense? How can I be tormented mentally? How can I be hurt by somebody else? How can I, in my sickness and in my weakness, how does that glorify God? We're going to find out here in chapter 8. Paul also will go on in Romans chapter 8 to explain a few more sufferings when he says nothing can separate me from the love of God and then he says shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, can any of that separate me from the love of God? So here's the question. If tribulation leads to hope and what we hope in is that future glory and Paul says one day that glory will be revealed in us and the perspective that we should have is that glory just completely demolishes any suffering we experience in this world. What is that glory? What are we looking forward to? I want to hope for something, but if I don't know what I'm hoping for, how can I want it? Well, I think there's hope in this present life of God being glorified through our suffering. Paul says in Philippians 1.12, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And when Paul says the things that have happened to me, he was beaten, he was lied about, he was thrown in prison, he was forgotten. So when we're talking about suffering, we are talking about suffering here. And Paul says all of that happened to further the gospel. So that's the here and now. But Paul isn't talking about that here. He's talking about a future hope. We've talked about justification, that we are freed from the penalty of sin. We've talked about sanctification, that we are being freed from the power of sin. And now Paul's talking about glorification. One day we will be freed of sin's presence. And what will we look like when that happens? will look like Christ. We'll look like the one that we dwell in and he dwells in us. Okay, so what does that look like? Well, the Apostle John, he explains it to us very clearly. Look at 1 John 3, 2. We'll have it up on the board. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. You know what John says? I don't know. You know what we're going to look like? I have no idea. We'll be glorified. We'll look like Jesus. But what that means, we don't know for sure. But we will know. We'll know that when he is revealed. When we see him clearly, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. We see him now through a mirror dimly lit. But one day we will see him face to face. And not only will we see him and be humbled and in awe, but we will be changed and we will be like him because we will be freed from sin's presence. I feel out of my league here. 
I'm talking about something that I don't know anything about other than what God's word tells us. One day we will be glorified and Paul's promising us the sufferings of this age, they don't compare. So somehow I got to get to a place that when I'm hurting, for whatever reason, I can find hope in one day becoming like Jesus, being glorified with him. And guys, we're not the only ones looking forward to this day. Look at verse 19. Guess who else is waiting for this day? All of creation. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? Look around. So Paul is personifying God's creation. This is not human beings here. This is the earth and everything in it. Paul personifies it. Says creation is looking forward to that day that we're glorified. Because what happens when we're glorified? The earth will be renewed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. What in the world's Paul talking about? God's creation is eagerly waiting for our glorification. It doesn't mean there's a mother earth. And Mother Earth is like, man, I can't wait for Jesus to return and all of his church to be glorified. Now, Paul's making a point. He's using this kind of language that creation is waiting and eager. It groans and it labors because he's giving us a cosmic scope, if you will, A lot of times when you think about redemption, who do you think about? One day we will be redeemed. Who do you think about when I say that? Usually think about ourselves, right? Maybe those we care about. One day we will be redeemed. But guys, it's just not the church being redeemed. It's all of God's creation that has been corrupted by sin. We often think about it in individual terms, but it will be a cosmic redemption. Sin not only corrupted us, it corrupted all of God's creation. You know how I know? Because in Genesis 3.17, then, then to Adam God said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and you have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So how has the earth been corrupted by sin? Well, Paul says it's subjected to futility. That means literally frustration. Guys, nothing lasts in this world. There is nothing eternal in this world other than the kingdom of God and that which exists in the kingdom of God. We have some hibiscus flowers in front of our house. They grow, they bloom, they're massive, and then they're dead and gone. They don't last. Any of you guys that grow gardens? Those things don't last. Animals. How many of you have an eternal pet? No, they grow old, they start to stink, and then they die. That's the nature of life's cycle. There's nothing eternal. The earth erodes and it gives way to time. Nothing is permanent in this life. That's why the author of Ecclesiastes says, what, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. But what's God's promise in all of this? He says, one day, the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption 
into the glorious liberty of the children of God. One day all of creation will be freed from corruption. It won't always be this way. And that's one thing that we have to look forward to. We have no idea. I mean, think about how amazing God's creation is now. Even corrupted. One uh, commentator writes, when we consider the majesty and greatness of the oceans, mountains, valleys, and forests, it staggers the mind to imagine what the world will be like when it's finally set free. But until that time, creation groans and labors with birth pangs. I don't know. Again, Paul is such a gifted author. Is there any better picture of present pain that leads to future joy than childbirth? Excruciating pain, from what I hear. Excruciating pain that leads to pure joy. What a description. It's a hopeful pain. Right, women? I don't know many mothers who would say, man, it wasn't worth it. You know how I know? Because you guys have more kids. So if it was that bad, you wouldn't do it again. But I don't know many moms that would say it's, it's not worth it. But Paul is doing something else here. I mean, think about the language he uses. Remember, he's speaking to a church that is both Gentile and Jewish. And when he talks about groaning, where would their minds go? Groaning because they're in bondage. The creation groans because it's subjected to futility. Creation groans because it's in chains. Wouldn't their minds go back to Israel under Egyptian rule? Why the children of Israel... In the Exodus, they cry out to God because they've been enslaved and God hears their cries and he delivers them and he sets them free and he begins to birth a nation out of Israel. That's a a birth story. So that story of Exodus, Paul would remind his Jewish listeners of that and they would think to themselves, well, he did it before, why won't he do it again? He said, us free before, I know he'll do it again. Look at verse 23. Not only that, we could probably give Romans that subtitle, right? And not only that, here's all the benefits of being in Christ. Here's what we have to look forward to. Hey, you're going to suffer in this life just as Jesus suffered, but that suffering is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in you. But not only that, we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. So creation is groaning, we're groaning, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Wait a second, I thought Paul already said we were adopted. But now we're waiting for the adoption? Guys, that's the tension that we've been talking about, right? It's the already, not yet, the hope that we have when we live in between two worlds. We have to understand this as believers, or else we're going to be extremely frustrated because we'll read God's word and we'll read who we are and who we should be and what we are and what we will be, and we're like, wait, what, what is it? Am I a sinner or am I free from sin? Am I adopted or one day will I be adopted? Yes. The answer is yes. Remember, justification means we are freed from the penalty of sin. That's right now. I stand before God knowing I'm accepted. I'm his child. I have been adopted. But have I experienced the fullness of being a part of his family yet? Do I know what it will look like when I sit at his table? Do I know what it will look like when we are all glorified and we're together in a new heaven, and a new earth? I have no idea. So I'm waiting for that adoption. It's longing for something better. And how many of us know there's something better than this life? Isn't that interesting that you know this? People who have never given their life to Christ know this. They're trying to make this world heaven. 
They're trying to get the right policies in place, the right social programs, the right mindset with enough meditation and enough positive reinforcement, enough exercise. I can make heaven on earth without God because I know there's something better. That's what people believe, but the reality is that better thing won't come until Christ returns and he redeems the whole world. But that reality that we long for something more, that should be encouraging. As C.S. Lewis famously said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, then the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If I long for something more, how, how is that even possible if there isn't something more? So we eagerly wait for the adoption, which will happen when our bodies are redeemed. Verse 24, for we were saved in this hope, but hope is that hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So Paul says, we have the first fruits. Again, it's one of these Christian terms. We can read past it quickly and not know what he's talking about. But guys, it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have a taste of what it will be like when we are glorified. When we give our life to Christ, God indwells us with his very spirit. And that spirit is a taste of what it will be like when we are in his presence. The spirit of God is leading us He's teaching us, he's changing us, and all of that is just a taste of what is to come. That's why Paul in Ephesians 1.13, he writes, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. That leading of the spirit that you experience as someone who is born again, that's a reminder that you are God's. That conviction in your mind, that ability to think spiritual things and not solely fleshly things, that's a reminder that you belong to God. Your ability to cry out to God and say, Abba, Father, I need you right now. That's a reminder that you belong to him. You're his kid. It's a seal. It's a promise. It's the first fruit of what's to come. You're just tasting what it means to be a part of the family of God. 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, for to the glory of God through us. How he who also establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us in God, who also has sealed us and give us the spirit in our hearts as a what? As a guarantee. How do we suffer well? Well, let's pause for a second because I feel like I have to acknowledge something. We live in between these two worlds. We used to be part of the fallen world. We used to be a part of the systems of this world. We had very little care for the things of God and we looked out for ourselves and ourselves alone. And that's a world that's fading and one day will disappear. But God called us out of that. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. And he saved us. And he pulled us out of that world, made us holy, but then he put us back in the world. So now we're in the world, but we're not of it. But we're waiting for our final home, which is in his presence, a new heaven and a new earth. But we're living in limbo, aren't we? You guys feel the pain of that every day, don't you? You look around and you see the th ways things are changing and you're like, are people crazy? Well, yeah. Just like, well, we're still crazy, but, but the blindness, you understand why scripture refers to, to being separated from God as just being blind. How could someone fight for things that are just destructive? 
And it's hard to live in between two worlds. It's not just hard, it's terrible sometimes when we start to lose people we care about because their bodies fail and they're not eternal. When people we love betray us. When people we've entered into a covenant with turn their backs on us. Life is full of pain. It's full of anxiety, it's full of worry, and it's full of loss because of the corruption of sin. So I don't want to belittle anyone's suffering. This life is difficult. I've pastored for 16 years, and sitting with people in their pain is one of the most difficult parts of my life. Because they're people that I love. So how are we supposed to navigate this life knowing that we live between two worlds and we are exiles, we're pilgrims, we're in this world but we're not supposed to be of this world but this world weighs so heavy on our shoulders. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8.26. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. That Spirit that we've been indwelled with. The Spirit of Christ the third part of the Trinity, living within us. He helps us in our weaknesses as we try to navigate through this fallen world. And we don't know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession. The Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So creation groans, we groan, and the Spirit groans. A lot of groaning going on. That's, that's what it means to live in this world. Creation groans. It's looking forward to the day that we're glorified because it means we'll be free from the futility. We groan because we live in a fallen world and then the Spirit groans for us when we don't know what to pray. You've all had kids, your son or daughter, run up to you and they're so upset they can't even speak. And you don't stop them and say, hey, until you can fully articulate why you're crying, I'm not going to comfort you. That's just mean. Have I done it? Maybe. But it's still kind of, kind of mean. But you've all had your kids just completely beside themselves, and you can still hold them and comfort them. But we see here that the Spirit knows exactly what we need. Verse 27, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. In our weakness, in that place where we're crying out, Abba, Father, and we don't even know what to ask for because we're hurting so badly. These times where we can't even formulate a thought because our minds are in distress. The Spirit is interceding for us and praying exactly for what we need. That should be an immense encouragement to all of us. Creation groans, we groan and the Spirit groans. John Stott writes, the Holy Spirit identifies with our groans, with the pain of the world and the church, and shares in the longing for the final freedom of both, and we and he groan together. And then here it is. Imagine this for a moment. God is comforting you in your pain, and you're suffering. The Spirit is interceding on your behalf. And this is what the Lord tells you. All things work together for good for those who love me. To those who are the called according to my purposes. That's what the Lord says. That's his encouragement why we suffer. It's going to work out. At my darkest moment. Call it rock bottom, and I don't even know what that means. Because rock bottom to me, to me means death, separation from Christ. And thank God none of us here have experienced this. But at my, the lowest moment in my life, 
when the Lord still reached out to me and he reminded me that he still loved me. I was weeping like this. I was crying like this. I didn't even know what to utter. I didn't know what to, to say. And I was in my car, and you've heard this before. My brother was right next to me. He was probably wondering what in the world was going on because it was just kind of out of nowhere. All the pain of my sins just flooded my mind, and I had to pull over, and I'm weeping in the car. And my brother, and I think it was spiritual, I really do, he reached out and said, everything is going to be okay. That seems like those words could be really empty. But in those moments, in that moment, it wasn't. And you know what? I can stand here and say he was absolutely right because God works all things together for those who love him. So whatever you're going through right now, know this promise. But I got to ask, are you one of the called? Are you in Christ? Because that's who this promise is for. Those who are the called according to his purpose. All of these benefits exist where? In Christ. It's nowhere else. He's got a monopoly on this. All of these promises exist in Christ. Look at verse 29. Because God... For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Paul's summing up the story of humanity here. That God knew us before time began. God didn't meet us for the first time when our moms delivered us. He's known us before time began and he had a plan to redeem us and conform us to the image of his son. So he called us and as he called us, we responded to that call and he justified us and one day he will glorify us. And guess what? That plan is going really well. Everything is going according to plan and we are in the last stages of that. We've been justified. What are we waiting for? When we're glorified. So we're learning how to suffer right now. How do we suffer? We eagerly await that time when Jesus returns and we get to see him face to face because that will burn away all the pain of this life. All right, verse 31. This is such a good question. What then shall we say to these things? Paul says, what, what can we say? What can we say to all that God has done for us? Here's what Paul can say. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. What are these rhetorical questions that Paul is asking? One, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who is stronger than God? Who is more powerful than God? Who knows more than God? If God is with us, who can be against us? No one. If God gave us his own son, his prized possession, and delivered him up for us all, is he going to hold anything back from us? Is there any good thing that he won't give his kids? Now, he knows what's good. We don't. We think of good things and we're like, oh, that Mercedes looks good. And he's like, that it will not be a good thing for you. But I will give you all good things because good and perfect gifts, that's what I know to give. And who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? 
doesn't mean there's not going to be accusers. We know Satan is the accuser. But imagine for a moment Satan standing before God, Jesus standing before God, and Satan saying, hey, this guy's a liar. Let me tell you what he's done. And Jesus goes to his father, yeah, that's true, but I died for him. Who's God going to listen to? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. We have sinned against God and God alone. And God says, you are forgiven if you're in my son, Jesus Christ. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall it be tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is what John Stott writes about these verses. He says, Paul hurls these questions out into space, as it were defiantly, triumphantly challenging any creature in heaven or earth or hell to answer them or deny the truth that is contained in them. But there is no answer, for nothing and nobody can harm the redeemed people of God. And that's what Paul's doing. He's standing, I, I, I just wish I could be there as this letter was being read to the church in Rome and how they responded as each one of these questions were asked. Is there anything that can separate us from the love of God? And they would yell no. After everything that Paul has said, not just in chapter 8, but starting in verse 1, after everything Paul has said about what God has done, is there anything that can separate us from the love of God? No. Is there any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? No. Can anyone bring a charge against God's elect? No. Is God going to hold anything back from you? No. Not if it's good and it's a part of his will. What can stand against God's purposes? What amount of evil in this world can subvert God's plans? But let me remind you as we close, that doesn't mean there won't be opposition. It just means that opposition will never succeed. There can be all the opposition in the world. In the last days, all of the earth's nations will gather together with the Antichrist and they will stand against God and with a word, that battle will be over. It won't even be a fight. We are more than conquerors through him. What did Jesus say? In this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome this world. The Apostle John writes, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And then he asks, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You are from God and you have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I don't know about you, but over the last few years as a born-again Christian, I've felt a little bit defeated. And this was the reminder that I needed. That we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We are not the victim in Christ. We have overcome in him. And here's Paul's finale. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm persuaded, he says. Meaning I have become and I remain convinced. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. Let's pray. God, we look forward to that day.
when we're glorified with your son, Jesus Christ. We don't know what that's going to look like, but we know that it'll be far better than anything we can possibly comprehend. And so, Lord, I pray that the suffering in our life would produce the fruit that you desire, that it would give us hope. That as we suffer, we would recognize the longing in our hearts for something greater. As we mourn the loss of loved ones, as we deal with the everyday trials of our broken bodies, as we struggle through addiction and distraction and the constant negative news cycle, I pray that that would just stir up more of a longing for what's to come, that we would hold fast to hope, that your words would be yes and amen, that instead of bitterness, or just feeling like we're the victim, that we would be encouraged. Because we don't suffer alone. We have a Father that loves us, and your Spirit is praying for us, and your Son is praying for us. So hear the cries of our heart. Lord, I pray for those this morning who are, are just overwhelmed by what they're going through. I pray that we can minister to them as your church. We can be your hands and your feet and we can be that voice that reminds them that they are treasured by you. That you have a plan and that you are working all things for good. And it doesn't minimize the pain. But as bad as it hurts, we know that your joy will far exceed that pain. One day. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.